Brothers and sisters, thank you for being on time. We're now ready to commence our second class. Our speaker, of course, is Brother Jason Robinson. And the theme for Brother Robinson's classes this week is The Tales of the Giants. And today's class is entitled The Adventures of Caleb the Giant Slayer. Brother Jason. Thank you very much, and uh, good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Today, we're talking about uh, a man named Caleb and his adventures in Scripture. Tuesday and Wednesday were a little bit more of the deep dive, getting to know the Nephilim and the Rephaim. We spent a little bit more of our time kind of digging into what some of those words mean, a little bit of backstory to them. Today is more of we're going to be following what is perhaps the most successful giant slayer in all of Scripture, a man who goes largely unappreciated when it comes to his endeavors at slaying giants. We're going to be taking a look, of course, at none other than Caleb. If you do need additional quick guides, pencils, note cards, anything like that, uh, they'll always be up here on the front, um, up here on the stage. Before we dive into Caleb, let's quickly recap where we've come so far, um, and before we kind of get to look at what our purpose is for today. So Monday, we got to know our giant, as we've discussed a few times, and we are probably now more familiar with our giants than on Monday we ever thought possible. We've gotten to know them probably pretty well. We're probably getting to the point where we're annoyed with them now, and we maybe just want them gone. We've studied them, we've studied their habits, their behaviors, and we've looked at them maybe from a little bit of a different perspective. On Tuesday and Wednesday, we had a couple fairly heavy sessions. We looked at the Nephilim and the Rephaim, as noted in the middle page here in your quick guide. And um, we looked at how both words uh, translated can mean, you know, pretty wimpy sounding things, right? The, the Nephilim, to fall, and the Rephaim, weak or feeble. And we ask the important questions, do you believe you can beat your giant? And that's after you've answered the question in your own mind, do you want to? And I asked you um, Tuesday and Wednesday to save this section at the very top of the Nephilim and Rephaim days. Do you fully believe you could beat your giant? So hopefully, we've circled yes on that question. And of course, this is... Uh, by all intents and purposes, to be as honest as we can. You're not turning this in when it's done. So we are trying to be honest in our own guide for this week. And then yesterday, we used lessons from Moses' final rally cry in Deuteronomy to a new generation of Israelites, which focused on the mistakes of the parents. We looked at the resume of Yahweh in conquering those giants and the position that God saw his children in, and he desired to see them in for the nation's to look at them as great in their own eyes. Today, we're really going to start to see the usefulness of putting together our recipe book, our plan of attack, or this quick guide. And we're going to fill in a whole nother page today, and that is under the section, Caleb the Giant Slayer. Today, we're gonna to decide where to attack 
We'll use the example, as mentioned, of Scripture's most successful giant slayer of all time, a man who saw giants when they first spied the land and had the vision of them burned into his brain for 40 years as he patiently waited for his turn to march right back to the same exact spot, to the same exact people to conquer his giants. So today, brothers and sisters, young people, we're going to search for our giants' homeland. Where do they live? We're going to try to meet them on their own turf. Now, with that being said, I want to quickly review the last couple slides we didn't have a ton of time to get into yesterday. And this was the complaint as summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 1 of the children of Israel. When they spied the land, they said, the people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great. And what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is he says, keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as Yahweh our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day. And so the reason that he wanted Israel to be great was because they would be wise and understanding, because the nations would look at them and say, God is nigh unto them. And they're great because their statutes and judgments are righteous. So this is the reason God really singles out his own people. And he says, you went into the land and you thought they were great. I want to flip that story around completely so the people in the world will see you as great. And it's with this rally cry that Caleb, I can picture being there, listening to Moses. We're going to now introduce us to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. As many of us are probably aware, his name means a dog. And from this, we see other types in scriptures of how this makes sense because he was actually a Gentile. And in Joshua 14, you don't need to turn these verses up, but in Joshua chapter 14, I'm going to read verse 14. It says, Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Not the Israelite, not the Jew, not the Hebrew. He was a Kenizzite. Therefore, Joshua was actually a Gentile. Again, probably a review for most of us. But he was also a Kenizzite, as we just read. And we're given maybe an interesting little clue in the book of Genesis, chapter 36, and at verse 9 through 11. Again, I'll read it for you. It says, and these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Bashmath, the wife of Esau, and the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. So while we can't be super dogmatic about it, it does seem possible that this man, Caleb, was indeed an Edomite, a direct descendant of Esau. We do know from yesterday's session that Edomites could conquer giants. Edomites actually conquered giants thanks to God's help in their relation, of course, to Abraham. And the Kenizzites actually do produce more than one righteous warrior. 
Well, we're also told something interesting that is pretty obvious when you think about it. But in Numbers chapter 32, we're told an extra little clue. It says in Numbers chapter 32, verses 11 and 12, surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So this man, Caleb, was also from Egypt, which makes sense because in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, we are told that there was a mixed multitude which came out of Egypt. So if these characters and qualities and attributes are all true, then one of the best giant slayers of all time was a Gentile. Now, we're going to take a look at his family tree. Because we're going to see a couple of these other characters show up briefly throughout our study today, as well as on Saturday. So Jephunneh had two children, we're told, Caleb and another Kenaz. Caleb, we're told in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, had three boys, Eru, Elah, and Naam. And we're also told later on that he had a daughter named Aksa. Kenaz had two children, Othniel and Sariah. And Aksa and Othniel get married, as we'll look at at Saturday's course together. And just to make it so it's a little bit more confusing, Elah also has a child named Kenaz. So this name, for whatever reason, was fairly popular in the Caleb household. But this Kenaz comes up a few different times. But it's this man, Caleb, that we really want to spend our day talking about today. Caleb, as we looked at on Monday and Tuesday, was one of the 12 spies. Imagine a Gentile spy with you. Hmm. We're going to spy the promised land to Abraham. There's a Gentile included? Not sure I like where this is going. But it was in the land of Hebron where they saw the giants. We were told in Numbers 13, verse 22, which we won't read again. But it was in the land that was conquered by Abraham and his Confederate Gentile leaders. And it was in this land where Sarah was buried, where Abraham was buried, where Isaac and Rebekah, where Leah and Jacob were all buried, was in this land of Hebron. And this is the land where Caleb goes to spy. And you can imagine what his mind is thinking as he's wandering through this land of Hebron. All the types and symbols and stories that that ground holds. But not only that, but to the chagrin, I'm sure, of many, in Numbers 34, we're given another list, which includes this Gentile, Caleb. In Numbers 34, starting at verse 16, it says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, These are the names of the men which shall divide the land to you, Eliezer and Joshua. Take two men, Eliezer and Joshua. They are going to divide the land into 12 princes of Israel, 12 heads, 12 leaders in the nation of Israel. And you shall take one prince of every tribe to divide the land by inheritance. And verse 19 of Numbers 34 says, and the names of the men of these, uh, names of the men are these. Oh, fun. Of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So we have here the very, very first name on the list of all the princes of Israel, of which there were only 12. 
we have a Gentile by the name of Caleb, that same righteous spy who spied out the land for us. Now, you'll notice probably that there's only 10. You can go, well, Jason can't count. It's true sometimes. But in this case, this is the 10 tribes on the west of Jordan. There are the other tribes on the east of Jordan, which are not listed in this section. Now, before we dive into Caleb, because it's been a while since we've actually heard of any stories of Caleb, we haven't heard of him since Numbers 13, even though his name has been brought up here and there. But we hear about him again in the middle of the book of Joshua. But before we get into Joshua, it's, it's actually really fun to kind of get the context of where we're at in the story. Because Joshua, the book itself, is going to give Caleb's recipe for fighting giants. And it's going to all start in this book. So in order to understand the book of Joshua a little bit better, it's helpful to look at the structure of the book itself. So bear with me just a couple minutes as we try to understand this quite wordy book. Deuteronomy 34, last couple verses, in verse 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died. There in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth the sepulcher unto this day. And Moses, it says in verse 7, was 120 years old when he died. Verse 8, the children of Israel wept for Moses. Verse 9, and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for, it says, Moses had laid his hands upon him. So now what we're going to do is we're going to finish up Deuteronomy. He has rallied the nation around fighting the giants, and he passes it on to Joshua. So the book of Joshua starts in the first five chapters, and it's really Joshua's new role. And he's going to prepare for the crossing of the River Jordan. But what scriptures does is fascinating. Because if you're anything like me, you already miss Moses. But what Joshua does is it lays out the character of Joshua as a new Moses. Because in the first five chapters, Joshua calls upon the people to obey the law from Sinai like Moses did. He sends in spies to serve at a land like Moses did. He divides the water like Moses did. And he calls upon the camp to keep the Passover like Moses did. And the section ends, the end of chapter 5, with a very similar story to Moses, the very beginning of his mission. An angel interrupts the spying of Joshua of Jericho, and I can see him crawling up a hill, and he sees Jericho on the other side. But in between him and Jericho is a man holding a sword out. And he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel says something amazing, neither. But as captain of the host of Yahweh, am I now come? And he worships him and he says the same words which Moses was told on the beginning of Moses' journey. Take your shoes off. The place where you're standing is holy. And it's worth circling that Exodus 3, 5 in your margin. Because... Joshua now introduces the character of Joshua as the next Moses, the one who would lead them into the promised land. And so we get to chapters 6 through 12. And this is the conquests of Canaan. We start all of these battles in this section of Joshua. 
Well, then we get to chapters 13 to 22, and we divide the land. And then we end Joshua with this exhortation given by Joshua to be of good courage, children of Israel. There's a lot of battles in front of you. So let's give this a little more of a visual perspective. Chapter 6 through 12 is the conquests of the land. And Joshua 5 and 6 goes over this, sorry, Joshua 6 through 8 goes over this section of the middle of Israel. And it's going to talk about, uh, in a few chapters, the middle conquest. All the tribes in the middle and all of their fightings and all of their battles that go on in the middle section. But in the middle conquest, we get a fascinating introduction to how God is going to work with the children of Israel in fighting their battles. Do you remember what the angel says? The angel tells Joshua at the end of the last section, end of chapter five, I'm not really on your side or your enemies. I'm here as captain of God's host. Well, that's exactly how Jericho was fought, wasn't it? I don't know about you, but that'd be a pretty cool way to take down a city, screaming and walking. And so the children of Israel are very motivated by the conquering of this city of Jericho. But we're left with a beautiful contrast because you see what happens is there's disobedience after the victory of Jericho. And what was what a massive victory, even a conversion of some Gentiles in Jericho, the contrast is quite simple. There was a man named Achan. And the very next battle was in a city called Ai, where they were on this high of victory, and they go to march into Ai, and they're ecstatic about another victory, and they suffer a humiliating defeat. And they say, well, this is not making any sense. Why did this happen? Well, it's because, brothers and sisters, young people, there was disobedience in the camp. And so what happens is this first few chapters lay out the rest of what they need to know. If you rely on God, God is going to fight your battles. The principle is the same for us. If you approach it with disobedience, you will suffer defeat. And so it's with this conquest that now we jump into many, 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 many more chapters about just conquests. Chapters 9 and 10, we deal with the southern conquests of the south of the land. Then we get to Joshua chapter 11, where in Joshua chapter 11, we deal with the north. And we are now focusing on the tribes up in the northern section and all of these people and all the battles that they fight. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we have that old familiar friend Moses. And it summarizes what happens on the east of Jordan in Joshua 12, verses 1 to 6. Two familiar kings, Sihon and Og, the great victories of Moses that would be remembered for many generations. And then in verses 7 to 24, we have Joshua's conquest in the west. Look at verse 7. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side, Jordan, on the west. And then it goes over all these kings, starting in verse 9. Many, many familiar kings. And so this is how Joshua is broken up. These 12 tribes and the lands which they are going to receive. But we're going to focus today on a special city, the city of Hebron. Because you see, in chapter 13... Joshua gives the land to the two and a half tribes in the east, not yet in the land of Canaan. And then chapter 14, we finally get to the land of Canaan. And in Joshua 14, let's start at verse 6. Then the children of Judah came into Joshua and Gilgal. 
and Caleb. The son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him. So, we've divided the land to those in the east. And Joshua gets ready to divide the land to those in the west. He says, okay, Canaan, let's divide up your land. And the first person knocking on his door is Caleb. And look at the memory of this man. He said unto him, verse 6, Thou knowest the thing that Yahweh said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you and Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy the land. And I brought him word again, as it was in mine heart. Very important words. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Interesting language. But I wholly followed Yahweh my God. And Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed Yahweh my God. And now behold, Yahweh hath kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, even since Yahweh spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day 85. But, verse 11, I'm as strong this day as I was in that day. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain, he says, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, Yahweh will be with me then I shall be able to drive them out, as Yahweh said. We've given no land on the west in Canaan yet. And scriptures brings out Caleb, the most eager of all the children of Israel, to claim his inheritance. Caleb was ready to fight giants. Remember, Caleb was a Gentile who kept the Passover. He was a Gentile who witnessed God split the Red Sea in half as he walked on dry land. He was a Gentile who saw Yahweh bring water out of a rock. He was a Gentile who saw Yahweh rain literal bread from heaven every single day. And he couldn't help but be impressed with the miracles and the grace of this Israelite God. So when somebody like that goes to spy out the land, when somebody like that goes to conquer the land 45 years later, there was no such thing as a giant too big. There was no such thing as too many giants. I've seen what my God can do. They're nothing. He had seen firsthand what the Israelite God was capable of. And so we read in Numbers 13 verses 1 and 2 that Yahweh had already told the children of Israel that he was going to give them the land. It was as good as theirs, if you remember. But what happens is the people say, well, we should spy the land out first. We should see what we're up against. And so what does God say? Fine, spy the land, except I want you to do one thing. One thing you didn't mention was, I would like you to take one man from every tribe. Why would he want one man from every tribe? Well, 
because while they're spying, they're also planning. What land do you get? What land does my tribe get? This is what God's ultimate purpose was. He didn't want the people to wander. He didn't want the people to die an entire generation in the wilderness. He says, go into the land, bring one from every tribe and decide who gets what land. He's trying to accomplish what we have to wait till Joshua 15 to figure out. And so he sends one person from every tribe for that very reason. But we wait and we wait and we wait until Joshua chapter 14 and 15, till we can enter into that land. And so there was one man who stood up. We probably know the story. There was an overwhelming majority of the spies returned to Moses with a very pessimistic attitude. They bring a message of really complete terror and dread and sheer doubt. But there was one man who stands up among the crowd. There was one individual who singles himself out. And at this point, scriptures doesn't say it was two men. Numbers 13 at verse 29. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea in the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb alone stills the people. It was Caleb who shouts those words. And you can feel for Caleb at this point, can't you? The whole journey home from the land was one of trying to convince the other spies that it was possible with God. Do you know who your God is? What did you eat for breakfast this morning? Nothing can stand in the way of God's miracles, but yet it was here and now that I think. Caleb starts to feel that feeling that you get when, you know that feeling you have when, when something you know is going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You just absolutely know without a doubt it's going to happen. That medical report's looking promising. The promotional work looks it's, it's as good as yours. Uh, that vacation that you've been planning for two years, it's tomorrow. But you know that feeling you get. It's quick. It's terrible. It's painful but you realize it's just dissolved. It's gone. The vacation's not happening. Flight was canceled. The promotion went to somebody else. The house was sold from under your feet. You know that sinking feeling in your gut where you're just like, There's, nothing can change it. It's done. The bad news is true. Now, he didn't know he was not going to step foot in the land for 40 more years, but he knew whatever was going to happen was going to be bad. So he pleads with the people, but to no avail. The other spies spread their fear and their dread in the hearts of all the rest of the children of Israel. Rumors start to spread. The three sons of Anakin are in the land. The giants of those stories that we've heard, they're absolutely true. It's too much to think about. There was too much work that had to be done. And so it's this little lesson that we come back to this ecclesia in the wilderness as we looked at on Monday. Being sons and daughters of God takes incredible efforts of faith, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? The kingdom isn't something that we're going to get into accidentally. Well, would you look at that? I made it. When Christ returns, there will be many people who will stand before him knowing that their lives weren't about killing giants so much as being neighbors with them. Let's think for a moment about what the children of Israel have done so far in their wanderings that justifies them to enter into the promised land. What does God see in them that proves to him that they deserve the land? Well, they faithfully stood behind Moses and they bowed in prayer when Egypt chased them and cornered them against the Red Sea. 
That didn't happen. They asked in faith and humility where they might find, hunt, or grow their own food. That didn't happen. They patiently waited for Moses to come down from the mountain to hear what he desired of them next. That didn't happen. They approached their God with reverence and says, where might we be able to find or dig for water? They politely asked for meat rather than bread. None of these things happened, brothers and sisters. And it was God who had to go out and prove his power once and again. It was God who went along with the demands of the people. He gave them bread. He gave them water. And it was God's mercy that he didn't just completely wipe them out when they made the golden calf. So when they get to the promised land, they've really done nothing at all that makes us think that they're going to be any different now that they've gotten there. Does it sound familiar? That's my life. Now, if God had gone ahead, if God had gone ahead and killed the giants, Israel would have been content to enter the land. Probably not thrilled. Probably would have been something the matter, but it would have been okay. But since they were alive, standing tall as ever, the Israelites did what they do best, and they decided to put in really as little effort as they possibly can. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Does this happen in our walk, brothers and sisters? If it requires us to do something, well, Egypt was easier. God has mercy to give us abundantly. Abundantly. But in the case of the wandering Israelites, it simply expired. They ignored it for too long. An entire generation who just couldn't bring themselves in to put that in that effort, they wandered until, Scripture says, their carcasses wasted in the wilderness. But just like Caleb stands up in Numbers 13 and he stills the people, Numbers 14, the very next chapter, singles him out yet again. And it says in Numbers 14, verse 21, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. We know the story, hopefully, Numbers 14. God wants to eliminate the people, start over with Moses. And we find out really why Moses is the most humble man to ever, ever live. He says, remember that, that thing about Israel being great? The rest of the nations would look at Israel and say, who was their God? He, he just killed them. We shouldn't do that. And so God says, I will be with them. But Moses, do not forget. The whole earth will be filled with my glory. Verse 22, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these 10 times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land wherein he went, and his seed shall possess it. In this context, Caleb is the only one to enter into the land from that generation. We know Joshua made it. We know other people made it. But scriptures, right after that amazing verse, Numbers 14, 21, says, Caleb is the man, because he wholly followed after me. And it says in verse 24 that he had a different spirit, as the ESV puts it. It was different from the rest of the entire nation is what it was different then. The people had put God to the test 10 different times. And it was this time, there was a murmuring. It was a disbelief. But it was more than that. In Deuteronomy, we read the addition that they murmured in their tents. It wasn't bad enough that they didn't want to fight for their inheritance, but they sat it out entirely. They weren't ready for the battle. 
They were complaining in their tents. Do we ever get absolutely fed up with something? Maybe it's a struggle in our life. Maybe it's pride, selfishness, distractions. And we know it's a struggle. We know it's a giant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead of dealing with the issue, we simply say, this is who I am. It's what makes me, me. If God didn't want me to have this giant, this flaw, well, he wouldn't have given it to me. Sound familiar? They'd already checked out. The murmuring turned to complaining. The complaining turned to rebellion. And the rebellion was what got them killed. Well, we come to Caleb, a man who had a different spirit, a different attitude. And so we read that we come back to Joshua chapter 14, and we see the first time that Caleb comes back on the scene. We haven't seen or heard from him in person since Numbers chapter 13. When he spies the land, he tries to talk them into coming into the land. And then we hear from him again. He's knocking on Joshua's door saying, you remember that land, Hebron? Can I go take it? Can I go slay the giants that are in that land? And Caleb reminds Joshua of the promise that Moses had made to him. He tells him exactly when, exactly where he was. And then he says something completely crazy. He says, I'm 85 years old. And I'm as strong as I was back then. Really? Do you think he was actually as strong as he was when he was 40? Or did the strength not ever come from him in the first place? That's what Deuteronomy yesterday was all about. Strength isn't yours. And I can picture Caleb in the front row of Moses' speech when he was giving Deuteronomy, an 80-year-old man, goosebumps on his arms. He was ready. He had been waiting for this day. The strength was from their God, which is why you can come to this chapter and you find that he did exactly that. An 85-year-old man took his little family and he went up and conquered the very people that kept them out of land in the first place. Well, all the tribes seem to be struggling getting their act together. Caleb single-handedly destroys the giants that were occupying his piece of promised land. Joshua 15, 13. And unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of Yahweh to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. Joshua 15, verse 14. And Caleb drove thence the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Hyman, Talmai, the children of Anak. He marches to the people of Anak. He conquers them, and he drives them out of the land. Brothers and sisters, this was a Gentile in the land of Israel who wanted his inheritance more than anything else. He wanted his piece of the promised land. Because you see, this inheritance was so much more than just a city. Hebron held such significance. They had spied it out. This is where Sarah was buried and all the forefathers of Israel. It stood for union and confederacy from Genesis 14. Victory despite impossible odds, Genesis 14. The covenants of Abraham. The forefathers lived in this very land, and Caleb would have known these things. He would have looked at union and confederacy and says, Hebrews and Gentiles could inherit the same thing. Victory 
Nothing is too hard with God. No giants too large. Caleb would have been part of the covenants given unto Abraham. And he was given land as his inheritance. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Caleb believed that belief beats giants. That's how he conquers them in verses 13 to 15. We're going to skim through a couple of these slides here for sake of time. But Hebron becomes a mighty city in Israel's history, a city of refuge, a city that was given to the high priest in the capital of David's empire for seven and a half years. Ephesians 3, verse 6, we don't have time to look into it too much, but as a verse that really says Caleb in type, more than anything else, I think, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. We're going to skip over a couple of those verses, and let's wrap up with looking at our quick guide here. As we wrap up our studies on the adventures of Scripture's greatest giant slayer, we move to a new page, Caleb, the giant slayer. And we have here two questions for today. And I've given you two days off on homework, so there actually is another piece of homework in here. But let's use another giant as an example. <clears throat> let's bring Carl back into the picture. We haven't heard from him in a couple of days. By the way, I'll say it again in this class. I know a couple Carls, ecclesially and professionally. They're all terrific. Uh, my wife and I actually had a brother, Carl, officiate our wedding. And um, I've known him for years, and I come to respect and love him dearly. So my apologies to any Carls, but I'm positive if you're Carl and you're listening, you're a fantastic person. But on to my example. If my giant is the following, no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to get along with Brother Carl. If that's my giant, it's at this point now where I actually hesitate on going to meeting because I, I know I'll see him and I don't want that awkward, like he's walking into the restroom and I'm walking out of the restroom. It's like, hey man, what's up? I don't want this awkward, you know, meetings on Zoom. I'm going to sit this week out. It's at the point now where this is a big giant. If this is my giant, how do I beat it? Where does this usefulness of asking these questions come in? Now, because since this is my giant, I've actually started to share all kinds of Carl's antics with the brothers and sisters. I've told them all about how he does X and how he says Y. And he only said that because he knew I was listening, which was true. I was totally eavesdropping on him. But now in hindsight, I've really tainted Carl's reputation in the eyes of seven brothers and sisters. My kids don't like Carl, but they have no idea why. And the whole ecclesia can feel a rift between Jason and Carl. They can feel the giant, and it's really actually starting to affect more than just him and I. Let's say this is my giant. How do I tackle that giant? How do I slay a giant like that? Well, in case you haven't figured it out by now, giants aren't easy. But let's go through and see if I can apply some of my rules. What kind of giant? It's brotherly cooperation but I've scrambled it to be roll bright cornetopy. That way the guy behind me can't actually read what my giant is. The location is a stronghold. It's at an ecclesial functions. I can't simply just switch ecclesias every time this kind of thing comes up, but I named my giant Corporal Petit, side note. 
And I used a verse in 1 John 4, verse 19 as homework, which I was assigned, that says, if you hate your brother, then you hate me. And it hurts to read, but I need to learn to love even Carl. The next page, I do truly fully believe that I can beat my giant. The doubts that I see are pride is going to get in the way. I'm very uncomfortable with what he might say back to me, and I'm probably right. Those are my giants that I see physically. Um, and I don't want to get my own feelings hurt. I'm kind of fine hurting his, but if he says anything back to me, but I'm going to try to hold my tongue when the conversation comes up. I added to my prayer list um, that I need humility. And I also asked in prayer if God could present a natural opportunity to present itself, that I can talk to him about our issues. I don't want this to have to be something where I call him up and organize a tiny meet at Starbucks or something. I'm hoping that I can just stumble into a natural opportunity. Well, somehow my prayer was answered the very next day when our four-year-olds decided randomly that they're best friends and just because their birthdays are both in September. So what happens now is I have to take over my four-year-old to his house for a play date. Well, I took this as answered prayers. I accepted the opportunity and I decided that I'm going to remove these giants by bringing over some wings. We're going to have a barbecue and we're just going to chat it out like old times. Well, it turns out after the chat, I was completely wrong about his motives. Turns out his actions were related to a much bigger issue with his parents who are in and out of the truth. And he's really struggling with that. So I feel like my giant has just been lifted off of my shoulders. I'm more than happy to attend ecclesial events again. I would say that this giant has been eliminated. I can check it off. I'll start a new pamphlet on my next giant, Brother Steve. It's going to be a bigger giant, but I'll deal with that one tomorrow. So how do I plan to cleanse this place from giants? Well, I brought over some wings. We just talked. Was it hard? Might've been the hardest thing I've ever done, but the giant's dead. Well, the next question is how can I defend this location from future giants? How do I make sure that this doesn't happen again? How do I make sure that he doesn't rear his ugly head? Well, maybe I can make Wings Wednesday a thing. I'll bring over the wings. He'll provide the barbecue. It's a better barbecue anyway. And uh, we'll just have open communication. Maybe I can explain to the seven brothers and sisters who, thanks to me, have a tarnished view of Carl, that I completely misunderstood the situation. I can repair his reputation. And it's crucial that now I show that the rift has been healed to the rest of my ecclesia. Because I have to defend this location now. Hebron stood strong. So your homework, I hope you enjoyed your two days off. How can you make sure this location stays giant free for not only you, but your brothers and sisters? I explained to my kids that the thing Carl and I had was just temporary little spat. We like Carl. He's a fantastic brother. So let's do it tomorrow. See if you can come up with where your giant lives. And we're going to skim through these last couple slides. But Joshua chapter 11 says that Joshua, in that conquest section at the beginning of Joshua, he conquered the Anakim in Hebron. It didn't stay conquered. 
Caleb would have to come back again and conquer the Anakim in Hebron. We need to make sure that our locations stay giant-free for a long, long time because they can affect more than just our own lives. It says in Joshua 11, Joshua's endeavors, and at the time came Joshua and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. Joshua fought the Anakim in Hebron. Caleb had to come back. Read a very interesting verse in verse 22 of Joshua 11. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the children of Israel, except in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, there remained. So giants remained in Gath. They dwelled there for many, many more generations, integrated themselves deeply into the Philistine civilization over time until they were slain by one righteous giant slayer, a shepherd, the warrior, and the king who fought giants when he was nothing but a boy. 